All episodes of Let the Music Play podcast can be found in both iTunes and at AshtonGustafson.com. If you have enjoyed these conversations and they have brought joy, peace, and resilience to your life, we ask that you would go to iTunes and leave a review. Our hope is to share these voices and conversations with as many people as we can. And by leaving a review, you will be helping this light make its way into the world. Chris Hewitz has been mentored by some of the great spiritual masters of our time, including Mother Teresa, with whom he spent time at her community in Calcutta, and his mentor, the Franciscan priest, Father Richard Rohr. He was introduced to the Enneagram almost 20 years ago while working in the slums of Cambodia. That's when the Enneagram found me, he says. His Enneagram journey has been influenced by the work of Rohr and other Enneagram experts such as Helen Palmer, Don Riso, and Russ Hudson, as well as contemplative spirituality teachers such as Jean Venier, Henry Nouwen, and Thomas Keating. Chris joins us today in this episode of Let the Music Play podcast as we discuss his latest book, The Sacred Enneagram. Hi, I'm Ashton Gustafson, and welcome to Let the Music Play. My, my sense is, is that discernment is really our ability to know what is, in fact, good, true, and beautiful, and, and what's good for us, what's true for us, and, and what's beautiful about us. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Let the Music Play podcast. We are in for a treat today. A dear friend of mine, we've had him on the cast before. We've had his wife, Felina, on. Chris Hewitt, he's the founder of Gravity Center in Omaha, Nebraska. This guy's become a brother to me. He is a beacon of light, uh, lives a beautiful and lovely story, and he's got a new book that's coming out called The Sacred Enneagram. And let me just tell you guys, uh, I closed the last page of this book a couple nights ago. Um, And this is one of those books that I know I will return to over and over and over again in my life. And so before we get into that, I just wanted to introduce him. Chris, welcome back to the show. Man, always great to to talk with you, Ashton. So um, where do we begin? Like, I know this is kind of a bad question, but for some people that maybe have never heard the word Enneagram or aren't necessarily familiar with uh, what this sacred tool is, um, where do you begin when you introduce people to a little bit of the history and maybe just exactly what are we talking about when we talk about the Enneagram? Sure. So it's, it's, a, little, it's a little tricky to, to sort of just jump into the deep end here. Yep. Um, but that's what we're we're sort of being forced to do with um, where the, the conversation around the Enneagram is at today. Um, in the, in the 40s and, and 50s, um, there's a Bolivian wisdom teacher by the name of Oscar E. Chazo. And, and Oscar E. Chazo um, sort of went into this seven-day hallucinogenic bender, this divine coma. And he came out of this having communicated that he met with an angel, and, and this angel um, taught him 108 variations of, of the Enneagram. Um, you fast forward this a little bit. Oscar Chazo teaches it to a gestalt, a gestalt therapist, a, a Chilean man by the name of Claudio Naranjo. And what he teaches Naranjo primarily begins to be codified around what we call now the Enneagram of personality. But this is really just, just one iteration of these 108. 
and, and, and Naranjo begins to teach the Enneagram to some graduate students at Berkeley, California in the 70s and 80s. And when it sort of gets let loose from this little, this little collective of, of mentees, um, it really gets sort of unleashed in, in a number of ways around psychology, around spirituality, around somatic body work. Now, you fast forward all that to 2017 and, and, and what's become sort of popularized and, and where it's congealed is around personality. And, and so it's a little bit of a bummer to me because it's really much more than a personality tool, much more than a personality profile system. But to make it as accessible, I think, to as many people as possible, that's what folks have, have sort of reduced it to. So the any yeah so go ahead yeah well and so I was about to say so a lot of people when they hear personality profiles they they their mind immediately goes disc profile Myers Briggs Strengths Finder um, you want you want to riff on those compared to the Enneagram sure so so your 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 Myers Briggs is is essentially a collection of affinities that are are, are tethered to your sense of temperament and and this is sort of how you um, relate to people, environment, energy. Um, it's how you make decisions. And, and your temperament um, can fluctuate. Your, your, your temperament, um, some people have argued, will, will change. So Father Richard Rohr, one of my teachers, says that as, as we grow in maturity, we, we tend towards introversion more than extroversion. Your strengths finders, I was actually certified as a strengths coach because Gallup University here in Omaha um, made it pretty easy for me years ago. But your strengths finders are your talent things. These are the innate abilities that you just have inclinations towards succeeding, excelling in. So, you know, these guys who take guitar lessons for four or five years and are still struggling to, to play a song versus these guys who pick up a guitar and 20 minutes later playing Bob Marley or these folks who study Spanish in university for four years versus these folks who go down to Guatemala for a summer and come back, you know, half fluent there's things that we're naturally gifted towards. And this is what our strengths finders tells us. The, the Enneagram, however, really is about excavating our essence. Yeah. It's really yeah. about getting behind the temperament, getting behind our gifts, getting behind our personality. And, and it's a really about showing us the, 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 the purpose, the divine purpose for our being, why we were gifted to the world. Um, so it's really a, it's it's a tool for homecoming. Hmm. It's um it's a it's a place to return to, like I said, the essential self, the true self, the 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 gift of our of our essence. And, and so I remember, you know, the event that you helped host with us in Waco this summer, um, and the the thing that I wrote down most often was this idea of excavating our essence, um, really re returning, remembering. Um, reawakening to that divine imprint. Um, so, which, you know, the more people study the Enneagram, the more that may make sense. You and I are sitting here talking <laughs> vernacular and lingo that people may not understand. But just as a very bird's eye view above this tool, um, how do you break down kind of these nine personalities? I know that you, you, you use a phrase and you say that someone may be dominant in one type as opposed to saying, well, they are the helper or they're the performer or they are the challenger. You want to walk down that road? Sure. So, so if you're new to the Enneagram um, and you go and pick up a book or, or you get online and, and do a web search for this, you're, you're going to see this sort of 
super evil looking pentagram on steroids <laughs> with nine points around around it. Um, these nine points um, are referred to as types. So there's type one through type nine. And like I said, a lot of people have reduced the Enneagram in these types to types of people. Um, but one of my teachers, Russ Hudson, and, and I try to really develop this in my book, um, sort of see these as less about nine kinds or types of people and more about nine paths back to God. Well, as you go around this, 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 this circle, I sort of like to call it a color wheel because you blend into the numbers on either side of you. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a number of different ways of describing these nine types. And so I learned it um, from Richard Rohr's sort of fundamental needs. And so he would say that type one is the need to be perfect. Type two is the need to be needed. Type three is the need to succeed. Type four is the need to be unique. Type five is the need to understand. Type six is the need to be secure. Seven is the need to avoid pain. Type eight is the need to be against. Type nine is the need to avoid now, now, there's other schools and authors and teachers who've wrapped names around these types, right? So they would call um, type one the reformer or the perfectionist, type two the giver or the helper, type three the achiever or the, the, the performer, type four the, the, the romantic or the individualist, type five the investigator, the observer, or the theorist, uh, type six the trooper, the skeptic, the loyalist, type seven the epicurean or the enthusiast, type eight uh, the contrarian the challenger, and type nine, the mediator or peacemaker. However you go around the circle, however you learn to sort of understand the, the, the energy or the essence or the characteristics of the types, I, I, I think is, is a good starting point. But I, I generally don't like to use the names for the types because the names sometimes describe more of a social function or role that hmm. we play, not our essence. Yeah, yeah. Secondly, to your, to your question, I, I generally like to say, look, I'm dominant in type eight, like, I could say I'm an eight or I'm an Enneagram eight or I'm eight on the Enneagram. But I think when I, I, I lead with this language, I'm dominant in type eight. What I'm affirming here is though that is my resting point on the Enneagram. That is sort of where my soul was sort of arbitrarily dropped on the circle. I still, and all of us still access the energies of all nine types. Right. Um, and so it doesn't mean that like I'm an eight now I'm stuck in this little fatalistic bucket and now I'm trapped or, or tethered to that and can be caricatured. No, it's, it's, this is, this is the point from which I have gained and been gifted a perspective on the world. But I also reach to the numbers on either side of me. I also reach in the integration and disintegration to a couple of other numbers and, and in accessing the energies and the gifts um, of a few other numbers that actually is what makes this beautiful and complex and dynamic and, and interesting. So when the conversation begins around where does our number come from or how do we originally are led to certain numbers? Are you in the party that says, well, you're born with it? Or are you in the party that says there's typically a moment in life when, you know, as you call it, the attack on virtue happens? How do you break that down when people go into that dialogue of where where does the number and where do we, you know, kind of fall on the number? How's that happen? Yeah. So, so there. So, what, what I love about the enneagram is, um, you know, there's a Yale and there's a Harvard and there's all other sort of right. schools of thoughts in between. It's it's really denominational. It's really proprietary in terms of its intellectual property, and and, and people have really stake their claim to their notions of 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 language, of source, of of assumptions. One of you know one of the super interesting conversations that that the, the 
the, the experts in the field love to sort of kick around is this nature or nurture. And, um, you know, again, Father Richard Rohr, one of my teachers, actually thinks it's one-third nature, one-third nurture, and one-third just learning to play a role as a child. Hmm. Um, and, and I don't want to disagree with Richard on Father Richard on anything, <laughs> but my sense is that um, you're prob- this probably really is nature. You're probably really born um, with, with an affinity towards, towards a dominant type. And um, I, I sort of try to support my theory by looking at sets of twins who've grown up in the same homes with the same access um, to opportunity and resource with the same caregiver or caregivers, but having completely different readings on their childhood experiences, on their so-called childhood wounds, on how they related to their caregiver or caregivers as either protective and or nurturing um, parents. And, and so my sense is, is you're, you're born at a, at, a, at a certain spot on that circle, on the Enneagram, and, and like I said, that becomes the perspective that you have as you look at yourself and, and the rest of the world. So um, as people venture down into this, and what I wanted people to do is just kind of get a bird's eye view about what we're talking about before they go out and purchase this book. You also talk about the intelligence centers, um, and there's three of those on the Enneagram. What are we talking about when we're talking about the intelligence centers? Right. So, so actually... So actually, I, I think um, the greatest teachers of the Enneagram start with the centers. Hmm. And in fact, we, 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 we learned this through the man who sort of brought the Enneagram forward in, in the early 1900s, this uh, uh, Turkish-Armenian man by the name of George Gurdjieff. And Gurdjieff taught the Enneagram um, as, as, a, as a way of translating any perfect system. But when he taught it as it related to human essence, he, he taught it through these, these centers, well, the intelligence centers sort of have, have evolved, and, and, and what we're talking about here is the sort of raw material of the wisdom that is hardwired to our body, to our emotions, to our thoughts, that allows for us to have clarity and discernment. So if you look at the, the Enneagram, types 8, 9, and 1 make up the body center. This is the instinctive center. These are the people that experience life as, as too much, and so the 8s will will fight back, the nines will withdraw, the ones will, will try to fix it. If you're in your body, um, you're, you're, you're overly concerned with, with control. You're, you're really um, concerned with command over your environment, yourself, your relationships. And your most accessible emotion is anger or frustration, right? Well, from our body, we, we move up into our hearts. And so types twos, threes, and fours make up the heart center or the feeling center. These are the, the folks that have a, a highly developed emotional intelligence and, and in fact, can sometimes read uh, the emotions of somebody else better they can read their own, right? Um, they're primarily concerned with connections and, and comparisons, and and their 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 most accessible emotion is a form of guilt or shame. And so, twos feel guilty for having needs because twos want to be the solution and the one who gives themselves to meeting the needs of others. Threes feel a little bit of shame because not that everything in the life of a three is a hustle, but they sort of know how to size up a room, how to size up a person and work with that individual or that group to get done what needs to be accomplished. And, and they do this very quietly. They do this with a, a sort of understated competitive edge. And, and they do this as sort of chameleons in that they, they're, they're very adaptable. Um, the fours just feel shame because they feel lost. They feel like they've lost their significance and they don't know who they are. Ironically, and what's really tragic about the fours, though, is they see significance and beauty in everything, and they draw attention to it, and, 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 they, and they highlight it in, in really exceptional ways. 
And then, right, so we move from our body into our heart, into our head. The fives, the six, and the sevens make up the thinking center or the head center. These are the, the folks that are primarily concerned with competency, getting solutions, obtaining security and stability, right? And, and so the fives try to, to figure this out. The sixes threat forecast and the sevens think forwardly. They're, they're always anticipating what's next and, and, and planning for the future. The folks in the head, are, are, are their most accessible emotion is, is a form of anxiety or distress. And, and so this is, honestly, when we, when we get into the Enneagram, I, I sort of feel like, you know, how you perceive the world through your instincts, through your feelings, or through your thoughts tells you something about yourself that you've always known, but you've maybe not had the, the framework for understanding. And, and what this is telling you is this is where you practice discernment. This is how you know how to make great decisions. Yeah. And so it's a really, really easy starting place. And you actually, I, I think um, when I was going back through the book today, I went into that passage on discernment, um, and you defined it really well. Help people grab a hold of what you're talking about when you talk about discernment, because this is, that can be a funny word, and I think when you can lay the Enneagram over that, where this is when this thing becomes real life, when the rubber hits the road, and in the smallest moment of your day, or whether you're at the office, or whether you're at home, I, I'm finding now that some of the, the narrative that I'm having in my head uh, is really, uh, the, the Enneagram has given me the space and the language to discern, um, you know, a healthy direction for me to go in the moment or a not so healthy direction. Right. So, so discernment is, 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 is tricky because my sense is, is all of us want to be more discerning. All of us want to know how to make better decisions. But I, I think that's, that's a sloppy sort of way of reducing discernment down to just one aspect. My, my sense is, is that discernment is really our ability to know what is in fact good, true and beautiful and, and what's good for us, what's true for us and, and what's beautiful about us. Now we, we park a lot of that in our shadow and our shadow isn't our false self. Our, our shadow is a part of our ego that we, we don't want to see, we can't see, or we avoid looking into. So discernment sort of, wakes us up. It sort of gives us the eyes to sort of cast light on, on some of these things that seem convoluted or confusing. When we're practically talking about it, though, it's how do I know what partner to choose? How do I know where, what, what city to move to? How do I know what job to take or what field to study in? And, and those sort of low-hanging questions of discernment really are, if I'm honest, those are those are practice questions for real life. Mm -hmm. The real work of discernment is how do I work with my own triggers, my own, uh, my own stress fractures in, in, in my personal character structure? How do I solve problems, the interpersonal problems and aches in my relationships, my community? Um, how do I do my inner work day after day after day after day? And so, you know, discernment is really sort of our invitation into becoming more human. When you, uh, you just mentioned the um, kind of the shadow aspect of this, when, when you start talking about the shadow side of this conversation, are you referring to the unconscious and subconscious? Um, I know you walked through that a bit in the book. Um, and, and to also add another question to that, are you also kind of talking about the space where we believe some of the lies that maybe some of these numbers think to be true? Um, walk with me on that. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so that's a good one. That's like three or four. That's a mashup. Uh, 
Let's just I, um, let's just start with the shadow aspect first. Yeah. So my sense about our shadow, like like Father Richard says, for us to cast a great light in the world simultaneously requires that we will also cast a long shadow, and it's there. It, it follows us. You know. What's so funny is, Ashton, if if we're sitting in a, a, a cafe having a coffee, um, and I look at you, I can see your shadow behind you. Um, when when the sun is is mm. is on you. When you're illuminated, when you're the brightest, but you can't see your own shadow unless you turn around to look at it. That's it takes good. some That's good. effort. So, so what we're talking about with the shadow here is is it's 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 the other side of what we're we're capable of of engaging in our three levels of consciousness. So, in the book, I, I sort of unpack that a little bit. Um, I talk about our our. The, our conscious mind, what we are aware of, what we can perceive and what we can think about, what we interact with. But, and, and I really do think like the, the three levels of consciousness are, are aligned with our, our intelligence centers. And so I really do think our consciousness is, is easily and most accessibly accessed in our thoughts and our, our ability to be logical, rational, to, to have sort of cognitive interrogations of what we perceive to be good true, and beautiful but then you drop down into your heart you drop down into your feelings you drop down into to this emotional space that you don't always have really clear accurate words for and and and, and is triggered by memories and is expressed through sensations and, and feelings and i think this is our our subconscious it's it's there it's it is accessible we can get to it and we can learn to trust it but it can't be as clearly defined and narrated as, as, as those things that we, we think through. And then there in our body, actually in our instincts, I think is our unconscious. And this is really where the majority of us sort of operate from where we're hungry, we're tired, we're thirsty. We, we have all of these human impulses that move us through the day that move us in our work and our relationships, but we're unaware of them. We, 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 we don't count our breaths. We don't know how many times we blink every minute. We, we don't know what our resting heart rate is. And all of these things are just sort of happening behind the curtain. And if they weren't, then we wouldn't be able to function. It's, it's the reminder that we're alive. And, and when you bring these three levels of consciousness into the Enneagram and you look at them against the intelligence centers, what you're, you're starting to see is, is for, for most of us in real life, we're driven by our unconscious. We're driven by our instincts. We're driven by our impulses, our body. And it's the rare person that actually sort of turns that upside down, that reorders these, that learns to discipline and listen to and work with these instinctual drives. And when we can, and when we can order this unconscious, when we can receive it as a gift and start in our bodies, then we move up into our hearts. And then moving up into our hearts, what we start to see is when we're present, Right there's something in the enneagram that, that that speaks to a virtue that comes out of our heart. Yeah. This is one of the created purposes of our being. But when we're not present, when we're disordered, when these instincts are out of balance, our hearts are reactive. Well, bringing emotional objectivity allows for our virtue to come forward. And so, from our bodies into our hearts, then we move into our heads. And connecting our heart to our head allows for this this um this this whole, in the Enneagram, we call it the holy idea. It's mental clarity. That is the fruit of emotional objectivity. But when we're not present, we have hearts that are reactive and we have minds that are overactive and we have instincts that are disordered. And, and that, 
really is where most of our problems and most of our pain and most of the heartache in our lives comes out of is the lack of awareness of integrating these, these three components of our consciousness. And so where you lead us in this book, and I've read a handful of Enneagram books. I've done consultations with you. We spent a weekend with you in Waco. Um, what, what I loved, you, you've taken this beautiful tool, this sacred tool, and you've said, it's not enough just to know your number. It's not enough just to know things about your number. What if um, some of these practices that have been in our tradition for so long, yet have, you know, unfortunately we've left behind, what if we brought those things back into discipline, back into daily practice, and we're talking about solitude, silence, and stillness? Break that down a bit, because I don't want people to just think this is a book where you can go find information like this everywhere you actually lead us down a beautiful path of, okay, now that we know this, how can we rest in the presence of love? How can we return back to that holy idea, that, that true self, that essential self? Um, and you kind of lay out practices at the end of the book. Right. So, so, so in the book, I, 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 I did this actually very deliberately in three acts. And the first act is sort of the crisis of identity. Who am I and how did I get lost? Um, How do I find my way home? The second bit here is, well, the Enneagram is a sacred map that actually can show you what it looks like to start to find your way back to to your essential nature. And and then the third bit is, is then once you're sort of on this path, how do you stay on the path? And what are the practices that keep you sort of focused and committed. And, and, and like you said, I, I really root and ground those in contemplative spirituality and contemplative prayer practices. Um, what I didn't want to do was write a book where you could just turn to one of nine chapters and read 27 pages about yourself to yeah. fuel your own narcissism. Yeah. Like, actually, that doesn't help anybody. It, it helps us less than it helps you if that's what you're doing with the Enneagram. Um, but what I tried to say is, look, based on your intelligence center, where do you lead in your own spiritual formation? How do you nurture your own spiritual growth? And, and so in the book, I, I, I outline this very clearly. If you're a body type, it's, it's really posturing your practice in stillness, right? If you're a heart type, it's, it's, it's bringing solitude forward as, as the lead um, way you are being held in how you pray. And if you're a head type, it's in, it's in silence, and, and, and these postures began to help us see how the Enneagram really is less about nine types of people and more about nine paths to God. Now, solitude, silence, and stillness are great, and those are simply postures. That is simply how we are holding and being held in prayer. But as we open our hands before the divine, what is it that we, 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 we offer God in these open hands? Hmm. And this is where in the book it starts to get a little wonky because then I say that we either hold an intention of consent, engagement, or rest in our prayer posture. And uh, when you take this consent, engagement, rest, intention with the solitude, sound, stillness, prayer posture, and you actually overlay them, you come up with nine unique combinations, which I think actually are, are the not a, a horoscope fatalistic prescription but are really compassionate rails for each of the nine types to sort of like be welcomed into the to the loving heart of god wow i mean and and i can just say that there's 
while you may Google Enneagram books and you may find hundreds and hundreds, this book, um, and I've told you this before, this book takes it an entirely new way, a beautiful way. It feels like a natural way. It feels like the right way we need to go with such information. Um, and I'm just super stoked uh, for to see where this takes you. For those of us, and like, this is the other thing I wanted to plug about the Enneagram. How many years have you been working with this now? Well, I, I learned it um, about 17 years ago in the slums of Cambodia. Right. So this um, this is this is a lifelong tool. This is not just a get it and then move on. You want to speak on, you know, the journey you've had, where it's taken you, how it still teaches you today. Well, I, I sure, and and maybe I can can root that in and how some of the great teachers have also encouraged people to work with it themselves. I, um, I look at Claudio Naranjo, the Gestalt, the Chilean Gestalt therapist who, who, um, really brought this to North America. And like I said, he, he, he taught this in, in the backyard of his little spot in Berkeley, California to a number of grad students. What he did with them was, was he worked with them for several years. And, and in fact, what he did was he made them all sign a a contract that said that they wouldn't teach this until he had given them permission, written permission wow. to teach it because he realized then that this is easy. Once you figure out the fundamental needs, the basic fears, some of the, the, the quirks and the foibles and the, the idiosyncrasies of each of the nine types, you can be super interesting at a Denny dinner party. Um, <laughs> but if that's what you're doing here, you're, you're really weaponizing this. You're really reducing mm. people to fragments of their whole, and, um, and I see this from a lot of people. I mean, I get these calls every month, like somebody wants to get trained and certified in the Enneagram so that they can teach or they can use it in coaching. And they're looking for the fastest, quickest route to, to get their certification and their training in. And, and I, I get it. I totally get it because this is, it's exciting. It's interesting. It's super practical. It's super helpful. But I, I think what Naranjo was onto back in the, in the seventies there was sure. Learn this understand this wrap your mind around this but now integrate this into your heart and then experience this in your body and there are a lot of work and there's a lot of inner work and there's a lot of practices that that you you have to to, to sort of give yourself to undramatically faithfully and consistently where you begin to see the enneagram then showing up everywhere not just in somebody's personality um and that's when i think um this really comes alive for us. So, you know, for, for me personally, it's like I learned it 17 years ago. Um, super interesting, really fun. Like I said, I, I, I could, could tag people and type people, which is terrible abuse of this. Um, but then I, I, I started working with my spiritual director and I started working a little bit with Father Richard Rohr. And um, I, I started to understand that actually, like, this is devastating for the ego. As mm -hmm. compassionate as it is, it's also it also leads to great humiliation around the lies that we've taught ourselves to believe. It's, it exposes the, the myth of our own ego projections and the mythology of who we thought we were or wanted to be. Um, and then I actually started training and sitting with some of the great Enneagram teachers, the living masters in the world and, uh, and, and, and the exercises they would, would have us do and, and the movements and, you know, the, the things that they would, you know, and, and for me to sort of even 
as I'm sort of remembering some of these in this moment, like the resistance in me against some of this or feeling silly or goofy or wondering why in the hell do I have to play along? <laughs> it, it does something to you. And, and so my sense is this, like, as you, as you get into this, as you begin to sort of peel the layers of the onion back, like to just savor it, like yeah. to be patient with it, like to, to let the work come that needs to come at its pace and on its clock. And, uh, if you're trying to rush through this and if you're trying to, to arrive somewhere, I think you, you might be missing, missing the whole point. I totally agree. I totally agree. It's, um, process, process. Um, this, this tool is a process, but man, there's so much beauty to be held, um, and life, uh, and light to experience. So who, who's this book an invitation for? Um, sure. So I, I, I tried to write this book, um, to people of all faiths and no faiths, but, but really anchoring this and, and at least the notion that, 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 that God is love. And that if you're an atheist or agnostic, but you can at least rest in the notion that love is what is good, true and beautiful, and we could start there together, then we could journey forward together. Mm. Now, I also wrote this out of my own sort of faith formation experience. And, and so uh, at times it's, it's a little confessional, it's a little honest. Um, but I, I tried not to make it about me. I tried to make it more about the new we that we all are hoping to become together. Um, I, I understand that this might be the first Enneagram book that, that somebody reads and so um, I, I've tried to, 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 to translate the insider lingo, to sort of demystify some of the, the mysticism around the, the Enneagram. Um, but I've also tried to move the conversation forward in, in, in five or six or seven ways. I've tried to, to really push some theories that I think are, are provable, that, that aren't really sort of out there in the, in the conversation yet. And, um, and then I've tried to make this really practical for people who want to learn how to how to pray with their type then then what exactly do you do now i'll say this the the great i think the sort of sneaky secret of the book is i think some of the best stuff is hidden away in these 15 to 20 little little uh footnotes <laughs> and so if you read the book actually like it might be the footnotes that you want to spend the most time with <laughs> um but I tried to make it fun too. And so I think it's, I hope it's accessible. I, I think it's honest. I think it's, it's vulnerable and human. And, um, and I think it's really practical. I think you're going to um, actually have some work to do after reading this, yep. not just uh, yep. here's me knowing more about myself, but now what do I do once I've learned? Absolutely. And I've, man, I underlined so much, highlighted so much. I'm going to revisit this, uh, this work many times in my life. Um, so kudos to you. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. I think it's going to be a gift to, uh, whoever, uh, path it does happen to cross. What's the best way we can find it? You want to send us to Amazon, uh, your website, where's the best place for us to go and purchase a copy? Um, I, I think you should, you should buy it where, wherever you buy great books. And so if, um, if it's there, Amazon's, buy it. Yeah. If Amazon's the easy place to, to grab, grab a copy, do that. But if, uh, there's a local bookstore in your neighborhood or your zip code. Um, it'd be great to sort of keep these, these spots open because it'd be a, a real shame if paper books ended up being a, a cultural artifact and 
20 or 30 years because nobody sells them anymore. Yep, and yep. we've gone digital with it. Now, I know this work's going to take you uh, all around the globe coming up soon. Um, are, are any of these places you're going to be speaking and sharing on the Enneagram open to the public? So, so yeah, actually, so all fall, um, I'll be doing one-day workshops um, all over the states. And so um, I think the, the, the first one there is going to be in Portland, Oregon, then to Atlanta, uh, New York, um, Seattle, and Oklahoma City, San Francisco, Denver, um, and then... I'll try to close the year out in uh, New Zealand and Kona, which are not terrible places to go. Wow. These are all open registrations. Um, a number of these will, will sell out. So if um, you're interested in, in joining us for one of the workshops, you can go to um, sacredenneagram.org and um, all the information, the calendar, the dates, and the registration pages are there. Beautiful. Sacredenneagram.org. Um, guys, please go check it out. Support Chris and what he's doing. I promise you, uh, when he was with us this summer, two minutes in, everyone was like, oh, this is amazing. Um, so he knows his art and craft. He breaks this stuff down beautifully. I can tell you his heart is one that I trust. Um, and he comes to be a gift to whatever group he's sharing with. So, uh, I can say that firsthand. Chris, um, always, always appreciate the time with you, my friend. Yeah, man. Always great to connect. Appreciate what you're up to, Ashton. All right, brother. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Later. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode with Chris. Make sure you go to sacredaneagram.org where you can find more information about Chris and this latest work of his, along with numerous dates where he'll be traveling across the globe sharing this beautiful information. And as you approach this week, may you pause by the orchid, listen to the bluebirds sing, and be loved.